Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. These ideas of freedom and equality, for instance, are not themselves self-evident in their consequences or self executing. They require us to figure out what do we do with freedom? What is the meaning of freedom, right? Um, and it requires us to recognize at the most basic level that America is an argument. We are meant to argue perpetually. We are meant to contest the meaning of freedom. We are meant to contest perpetually the tension between freedom and equality, that when you have too much freedom, you are trampling on people's equality. When you have too much emphasis on uh, leveling inequality, you end up trampling people's freedom. And that those tensions, the tensions that we go, that go all the way back, if you're a fan of Hamilton, the musical, that go all the way back to those rap battles between Jefferson and Hamilton, these are arguments we are meant perpetually to have. And so what it means to be an American is to be perpetually arguing over what it means to be an American and to be grappling with the contents of this creed. It's not like, oh, here's the creed. It has all the answers for us. It's Here's the creed. It has all the questions for us. It's a pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast the founder and CEO of Citizen University, author of, gosh, what is it, six, seven books, including his latest, Become America, and someone I've admired from afar for a long time, Eric Liu. Welcome, Eric. Andrew, great to be with you. You too. Holy cow, man. Citizen University. <laughs> I, I like when a conversation starts that way. Holy cow, man. Yeah. So for, the, for people who don't know why I'm, I'm so blown away, uh, how would you describe Citizen University to people? Well, we're a, we're a nonprofit organization. We're based in Seattle, but working all around the United States. And our work is really trying to um, foster a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship and really kind of change a baseline culture of how we show up uh, for each other and, and in civic life. Superpowered citizens. So how the heck does someone uh, arrive at doing this work? And uh, I'd love to for you to retrace your steps a little bit. I mean, you and I have some things in common, um, but uh, you uh, grew up Chinese-American in this country. You went through Marine Corps training as an officer. Is that right? Well, when I was in college, I did go through Marine Corps officer candidate school. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that 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 was an unusual thing, I would I would suggest. Uh, and it seems like you had a very deep sense of patriotism from early on. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, the, in terms of background, I, I am uh, the child of immigrants. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as you know well, when you are a uh, child of immigrants, second generation American like that, I, you know, I grew up, uh, um, you know, with this strong, mainly unspoken sense in the household, um, you know, my very Chinese American household, that um, all I had done was, have, was, was to have the dumb luck to be born here that my parents had done the heavy lifting, right? And, um, and so the question implicitly was, what was I going to do to make this worth it? Uh, <laughs> Wait, do, you, do you have siblings? Let's stop there for a second. Do you have siblings? <laughs> I have a younger sister, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, so, because my brother and I also have a little bit of like the, okay, like, you know, <laughs> like, why did our parents sacrifice so much? <laughs> you guys had better do something worthwhile. Yeah, you know, and I think that that is... Uh, there's something great about that. That's that can be a lot of pressure, you know. But I think the um, the reality was that, uh, and I say it was mainly unspoken. It was just this expectation. Um, but I think you know my parents were born in mainland China, went to Taiwan during those years of war and civil war, came to the U.S. in the late 1950s, met here, um, you know, New York, and um, and so you know I grew up I grew up in the Hudson Valley of New York. Uh, which you also know well, outside of Poughkeepsie. And, um, you know, my dad and later my mom, too, worked for IBM. I grew up in this idyllic suburb at a time of peak American power and prosperity. And that really does kind of, you know, put a little oomph to the idea of what have you done to earn this? How, how are you going to actually show up to actually, you know, sustain this? And, you know, I wouldn't call that outright patriotism per se, but you know, the other thing that my, my, I have a grandfather who I never met. He actually died before I was born. But my father's father, his name in Chinese is Liu Guoyun. Um, and, you know, Liu is the family name. But Guoyun, uh, you know, for our listeners who don't speak Mandarin, is, it basically means deliverance of the nation, right? <laughs> so again, no pressure. Uh, but, you know, he, he, was, uh, he was the son of a farmer in Hunan province. He became a pilot, uh, uh, during the war years, he ultimately became a leader in the Nationalist Chinese uh, Air Force and, uh, um, you know, fought the Japanese, fought the communists, all that stuff. And so I grew up with these stories of uh, of this grandfather, and that shaped also my sense of, okay, well, how am I going to be useful to this nation, to my nation, to the place where I've grown up? That, that, that's so interesting. You had like this uh, this military heritage uh, coming here. Though, Believe it or not, I was an IBM brat, too. My dad worked for IBM. Uh, not that far from from your dad. You were in Poughkeepsie. Wow. My dad was at Yorktown Heights, so wow, I went yeah. to the IBM my, my family. My uncle was at Yorktown and, Heights. Yeah, we're yeah, yeah. The, in the in ten thing. minutes, we're going to find out we're cousins or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so you ended up getting into politics also relatively early on. I remember reading about you in the '90s, uh, where you were uh, an official in the Clinton administration, uh, speechwriter, domestic policy advisor, and you wrote a memoir around that time called "Accidental Asian." that came out in the 90s. Uh, and uh, I, as someone who's Asian American, I was like, wow, like, I think this guy is the most prominent Asian American politico that that I know of. Uh, how did you get involved in the Clinton administration? Well, uh, first of all, I love the circle of life that uh, I, I'm now getting to be like, wow, I'm with the most prominent uh, Asian American politico right now. And, uh, you know, I think it, it is uh, um, that journey, you know, I, um, you know, w with the with the backdrop that I was describing to you of just how my kind of family culture was, be useful, be, be useful to. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Be useful. <laughs> you, know, um, 
you know, that led me in college to explore different kinds of, of public service. I did internships in Capitol Hill uh, in the Senate. Um, as I mentioned, I went and did Marine Corps Officer Candidate School um, and finished that. I ultimately chose not to take the commission as a second lieutenant uh, because I went after graduation instead to go work in politics. And I worked um, on the Hill for a few years. And then when President Clinton got elected, um, I worked for him as a speechwriter. And along the way in doing that in parallel, I was just writing. I started a little magazine uh, in D.C. at that time called The Next Progressive, um, kind of a Gen X that was back when Gen X was the young whippersnapper generation. I vaguely remember that time. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and we were the ones who were, you know, being looked down upon as the young generation that was clueless and lost and adrift. And uh, and I was like, I, I don't like this narrative. You know, I'm part of a generation of a lot of young people trying to figure it out um, and trying to make our way together. And so we created this little magazine. That work, plus my work in, uh, in government, um, really shaped a, a large sense of my, you know, of of both the opportunity and the responsibility that people like you and I have um, to use our voice. You know, we, we both grew up, relatively speaking, with a fair amount of privilege. Um, and the question when you take stock of that is, am I going to hoard it or am I going to circulate it? Um, and to me, you know, getting engaged in politics and public service, getting engaged in the world of ideas was my way of circulating what I knew, what I'd gotten. You know, I went to Yale uh, undergraduate and and there too was very steeped in an idea of be useful you know don't don't just go go do this for your own betterment and I think that all of that kind of fed this spirit of uh, of public service so you you were in public service uh, throughout the Clinton years and then they brought you back during the Obama years uh, um, in that time you also uh, somewhere in there you ended up collaborating with Nick Hanauer on a book, uh, Gardens of, of Democracy. And while Nick, who's been on the podcast, is trying to fix the economy, uh, you've decided that we have to try and empower citizens. Uh, and one of the, the themes of your, of your last book, and there are a lot of themes, uh, when you talk about how there's a lot of action to be done locally, that you, you feel like, okay, I spent years in national politics, and then I was the trustee of the Seattle Public Library, and I feel like I learned as much or more <laughs> as, as the, 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 the trustee on the, on the ground, which, by the way, is like, I think, a really powerful theme. So, uh, so how do you mean? I, I had a sense of what you meant when, when you said that, but, uh, but what, what was it about the guts of local politics that gave you a different perspective? Well, here again, Andrew, I mean, you know, I, I think if we were to flip roles and I was just interviewing you, I mean, the, the breadth of political experience that you've had just in the last few years that that run that same gamut from national politics to, you know, though it's, you know, the greatest city in the world, New York is still, you know, local politics there. Um, and I think, you know, for me, um, I loved my time in D.C. I was formed in many ways and made many lasting relationships there and friendships. Um, but there's no question for me that the greater portion of my education in democracy and in kind of small C citizenship. And, and by the way, when I talk about citizenship, Citizen University, my organization, where I'm not talking about um, documentation status and U.S. citizenship as a passport holding matter. I mean this kind of broader ethical sense of being a member of the body, right? A, a contributor to the community. And, um, and I think it's been living in Seattle these last 22, 23 years um, that's just given me this deep, deep grounding um, in what it means actually to try to hold a community together. Uh, and whether that's being on the library board, whether it's, you know, Nick and I, apart from writing books together, we, we were 
um, the catalytic co-founders of something called the Alliance for Gun Responsibility um, that we created right coming out of Sandy Hook uh, after that uh, and, and feeling helpless, feeling as at that time parents of young kids, um, feeling frustrated that we knew Congress would do nothing, uh, but feeling that, you know what, this is a time to awaken citizen power and to push, at least in our state here, Washington, uh, our legislature uh, to act. And if our legislature wouldn't act, you know, our state allows us to go straight to the people and to put ideas and, and proposals for gun reform straight to the people, which we did. And all of those experiences, um, showing up where people live, dealing with the kind of hopes and dreams and fears that people have for their families in the texture of place, not doing the kind of talking points, abstractions, kabuki theater of national politics, um, that's shaped so much more of my sense of what it means to live like a citizen. And, you know, and just to go back a little bit to what you're saying about my, my first book, The Accidental Asian, um, and I've written throughout in all my books, whether they were explicitly about race or not, you know, I write a lot about race and American identity. I, I do think, um, you know, Asian Americans have a vantage point that is that needs to be heard and seen more in the discourse that is literally and figuratively neither black nor white um, and is about trying to break these binaries um, that both our racial dialogue and our political dialogue often uh, laps into. And I think that that... Um, you know, that way of seeing and thinking um, also shaped my sense of um, the way I want to move in the world. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free plus you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. I'm going to tell a couple a couple of jokes right right now around that <laughs> the fact that he's, he's a black or white. So, I was running for mayor in New York City, and then uh, someone said we need a mayor of color, and then uh, someone responded Yang's of color, um, and then the person said no, of more color. <laughs> and, and, and that was like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I laughed when I heard it, but it, it was it, it was you know a reminder. It's like that Asians. It's like. Well, not white, but not what people think of when they necessarily talk about people of color. And I, I remember when I was the last presidential uh, candidate on the debate stage who wasn't white, um, and and I joked with, I you know, I was like the last candidate of color, I should say. <laughs> and it was really impossible to ignore because there were only like six or seven of us left. It was just me, and then they asked me about it. I, I remember enjoying that too because it's like, well, I guess you know, you're, we're going to have to reckon with the fact that uh, uh, Asians 
aren't white, uh, and uh, we're not really uh, included in a lot of the conversations when people talk about people of color. Uh, I'm glad that you and I have been uh, hopefully opening people's eyes to different roles that uh, Asian Americans can take in this country politically. And you, like, full credit to you. I mean, again, I've admired you from afar for a long time. Like, you were one of the trailblazers uh, in, in this space. And I feel like now what you're doing with Citizen University is so fascinating that when I first heard about your Civic Saturdays, I was like, I have to look this up. Well, first, explain to people what Civic Saturdays are. Well, thanks, Andrew. And first of all, I mean, I, I think those those stories you're telling are, are stories that uh, um, speak to a lot of people right now. And I think the the... Uh, the ability to kind of carve out a voice in a place um, that is about, you know, see me on my terms, uh, but also don't put me in a box. Uh, and I think even the box called Asian American um, is a box that can oversimplify. Um, there are a lot of people who are not Asian American who think all Asian Americans are like you and me, who went to Ivy League schools and had parents work for IBM. Um, and that obscures a huge portion um, of the Asian American community that has always been there, that is there, um, and, and that, is, uh, that has not had opportunity, that has been, um, you know, kind of stuck in privation and discrimination. And I think that storyline also has to be um, complexified. But I think... Have you, have you talked to Jay Caspian Kang uh, about this? Because he, he also thinks that the term Asian American is in some ways uh, not very apt or uh, or, or it's... Uh, obscuring a lot. Yeah, I, I don't know him, but I, I, I know his writing. And I think the, you know, the, the identity itself, look, identity is always a racial identity in particular, but identity in general is always a combination of, of affirmative and defensive, right? And, and a lot of um, what came to be known as Asian American identity was born out of defense. You know, if, yeah. if white people were going to indiscriminately discriminate against people and not care whether you were Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino, whatever, and lump you into a category. And that at a then at a certain point, it became the right thing to do to say, let us take this and turn it into a, to, you know, make, make a virtue out of necessity here um, and band together and make a coalition across all these different ethnicities uh, and try to find collective voice. Uh, so I think there is positive in that. And my, that first book I wrote, The Accidental Asian, was a little bit about that ambivalent feeling that on the one hand, I get why this identity emerged. And on the other hand, I don't want labels that overly box people in or over, overly simplify or stereotypes about what even contains, what is even contained in that box, right? Even if we take for granted the label Asian American, we should be able to see that the picture that one conjures up when thinking about Asian Americans shouldn't just be a picture of you or of me. Definitely shouldn't be of just you and me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your question earlier about Civic Saturdays, this is um, uh, a big program of ours at Citizen University. And, and Civic Saturdays are gatherings that uh, we started here in our home base of Seattle, but have since spread all around the country. And, and we think of these basically as a civic analog to a faith gathering. Um, it, it's not church or synagogue or mosque. Uh, uh, but it on purpose has the arc and the flow and the feel of a gathering um, in a place like that. It, it, you know, people turn to strangers and uh, introduce themselves and talk about kind of questions that cut past small talk. We have, you know, we sing together. There are readings of texts. Oh, wait, um, wait, let's stop there for just a second. Yeah. What songs do you sing? 
because when, when I think of sort of Americana, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like I think uh, the things that pop into mind for me are like Bruce Springsteen, but I, I doubt that's what you all sing. Yeah. Well, you know, the ideal is to have songs that people together can sing uh, easily and, and it runs the gamut. Like here in Seattle, um, you know, the, the Civic Saturdays will have songs like This Land is Your Land, If I Had a Hammer, a lot of the great protest songs from the 30s, civil rights anthems um, and so forth. Um, but, you know, we, we've created a program now uh, called the Civic Seminary, training people to lead these gatherings all around the country. And so when they're happening in other parts of the country, it runs the gamut. People will sing traditional patriotic songs, America the Beautiful and, you know, the National Anthem. Uh, others will sing songs that, you know, are are more kind of, you know, less less connected to the American tradition per se, but are evoking a different spirit of of community and belonging, you know. And um, but beyond the singing, there are these readings of text. There are there's a civic sermon that someone will give to help kind of help this community make sense of the moment together. And then the most important part is people then form up into civic circles afterwards to really talk about how are we going to convert some of this inspiration and awakening that we're getting in this gathering here into ways of connecting anew or doing things differently where we live in our town, right? And in our community. I, I think Civic Saturdays, as soon as I read about it, I was like, that is the most fascinating, uh, tremendous endeavor um, because I, I, I think there's a real void in American life for a lot of people. Uh, you don't have a sense of community. Um, it's a role that was typically filled by organized religion back in the day. Um, but at, at this point, uh, you know, like there are a lot of people who are not overtly religious who would still want to have some kind of communal gathering. Uh, and there's something fundamental about standing and singing songs and, <laughs> and, and gathering together. This is very, very human. And yeah. so I, I, I thought adopting that format was uh, phenomenal. And then the, I, and then I was very, very interested in the content. That's why one reason I'm interested in the songs. Uh, I was joking to a friend randomly about, you know that song, and I'm proud to be an American, so at least I know I'm yeah. free. And, what, and then that song, I, you know, I always enjoyed that song. That, that song apparently has been appropriated as like a Trumpy song. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't be a Trumpy song. That's like, <laughs> that's oh, like I didn't everybody. know that. that. For many years, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, that song was actually played at naturalization ceremonies. Uh, where, where that's what I'm talking funny. about. Like, you yeah. know, and, and, and you talk about how beautiful naturalization ceremonies are and you, you – Put in in your book the oath of naturalization, uh, which is beautiful, uh, and I'm and you encourage everyone to go just check out like what's going on on these naturalization ceremonies because there are people that are so pumped um, to become citizens. Well, I'll tell you, you know, on that note alone, you know, my, my wife Janae Kane, who, who is the co-founder of Citizen University, she she has a theater background, and um, that's what it took. Well, I mean, you know, like, and, and I think you say this too. It's like that it took, you know, having a wife with a theater background. Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, democracy and theater emerged around the same time in the same ways in ancient Greece, not by accident, right? I mean, both both of these um, are about how you actually create shared ritual of meaning making and how you actually invite people um, into experiences that actually transcend everyday life and elevate their sense of, you know, being connected to others, being part of something greater than yourself, and. Um, and one of the things, Janae and I had been to a bunch of these naturalization ceremonies over the years, and I'd spoken at a couple. 
and you know they, they are unfailingly moving right i don't remember my parents the I don't think I went to theirs. They just came back with the little flags and the little booklets and stuff when they got naturalized. But when you go to this and you see, you know, there's that moment in a naturalization ceremony um, called the roll call of countries where they kind of ask all the immigrants who are getting ready to be naturalized um, to rise according to the, their country of origin. And then everybody's standing and then they're told the next time you sit down, you'll be American. Um, and, you know, that gives you goosebumps, right? And uh, anyway, we'd been to a few of these, and Janae, with her kind of theater background and having been born and raised in Louisiana, kind of so, though she herself was not um, evangelical Christian, she was always around that, um, th those modes of being. And there was one day we came back, and she just started sketching on a whiteboard, like, what if we created something like this, a, a ceremony and experience like this, that wasn't just for immigrants who've taken the test and want to become United States citizens, but was for everybody, was for people like you and me who, again, had the dumb luck to be born here, but have never actually been invited to contemplate the content of our citizenship, what it means actually to show up here. And what if we could create a ritual that would be for everybody? Um, and she started drawing this revival tent. She's like, it could be, you know, this revival spirit, but instead of being born again, you'd be sworn again. And uh, that was the genesis of this project called the Sworn Again America Project, where recreated a little ceremony, a little oath that is nonpartisan, that is centered around service and being useful uh, to our country. Um, and it is usable uh, whether you are, you know, a descendant of the Mayflower, uh, whether your family just got here, whether you are documented, whether you're not documented. Um, it is for all of us to claim this country and to make our commitment to each other in living here. And we've, we've seeded this sworn again ceremony, um, sworn again America ceremony, all over the country. I mean, it's happened in places, you know, during the Obama years at the White House, um, all the way to pu public libraries, military bases, college campuses, classrooms. Um, and again, that's a small project of ours, but our mode is trying to come up with these little, uh, these experiences, whether it's Civic Saturday or Sworn Again America ceremony, that take people out of the normal flow of either scrolling on social media um, or just doing their daily thing and actually stop and recognize the minor miracle that we are making a mass multiracial democratic republic here uh, and, and to kind of recommit to how hard that actually is, right? And that, that stuff is long before, long upstream of elections and policy um, and traditional politics. It's about the prior sense of commitment to what are we doing here? Right. What, what is this thing that we're trying to do and, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and being, being able to kind of elevate that with a certain level of civic spirit? This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. 
Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, and, and you you write uh, that what unites America is a creed. It's not anything else. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating and apt. When I was growing up, I used to think that what unify us is culture. Um, though uh, you and I grew up at a time when there was a bit more of an American monoculture than there is now, uh, back in the days when there were only three or four TV networks and everyone went and saw the same uh, TV shows and movies, uh, etc. How would you define this American creed uh, that that unites us? Yeah, I mean, I think the the creed is contains ideas that are totally familiar to everybody. Ideas that are baked into our founding and our foundational documents. Uh, ideas of liberty, um, equality, equal justice under law. Um, ideas of government of, by, and for the people. Um, these words that in many ways have become sort of, oh, eye-rolly, you know, it's much easier to be cynical about these words or to be um, scared about the ways in which people um, have hijacked those words uh, uh, for malevolent ends. Uh, but part of what we've got to do as Americans is to recognize, the, A, the kind of remarkable, I would say actually exceptional inheritance that these ideas actually are and our obligation to sustain them and, and to kind of sustain a sense of meaning um, in them. But B, that the way that we do that is not just to say, hey, people, gather around and you need to believe a little bit more in freedom, justice, and equality. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. I can the, do it. The, the, the way to do it, actually, is to recognize that these ideas from the get-go were ideas that weren't, I mean, we talk about you know, truths being self-evident in the Declaration of Independence, but these ideas of freedom and equality, for instance, are not themselves self-evident in their consequences or self-executing. They require us to figure out what do we do with freedom? You know, there is a group right now, as we speak, uh, that's holding the House hostage called the Freedom Caucus, right? Uh, <laughs> what, what, what is the meaning of freedom, right? Um, and it requires us to recognize at the most basic level that America is an argument. We are meant to argue perpetually. We are meant to contest the meaning of freedom. We are meant to contest perpetually the tension between freedom and equality. That when you have too much freedom, you are trampling on people's equality. When you have too much emphasis on uh, leveling inequality, you end up trampling people's freedom. And that those tensions, the tensions that we go, that go all the way back, if you're a fan of Hamilton, the musical, that go all the way back to those rap battles between Jefferson and Hamilton about the size and the role of government and central national government versus local, you know, voice and control. Uh, the, the fight between the pluribus part of our national motto and the unum part, diversity and unity. These are arguments we are meant perpetually to have. And so what it means to be an American is to be perpetually arguing over what it means to be an American and to be grappling with the contents of this creed. It's not like, oh, here's the creed. It has all the answers for us. It's Here's the creed. It has all the questions for us. And our job is to know enough about our history, know enough about how people before us have argued the creed, know about the things that people have fought for, fought each other for, struggled for, the ways in which they have not given up and not succumbed to mere cynicism. You know, if people, if, if black people in the United States in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s had just said, you know what, enough, 
It's been 70 years of Jim Crow. I'm giving up on the idea of freedom. I'm just rolling my eyes at equality. That's never coming, right? Then, then you and I would not be here right now having this conversation. But because a critical mass of people said, you know what, I continue, I insist on the meaning of these ideas, even though they've been betrayed from the get-go and betrayed over and over again, and even though I today labor under a system designed to betray those ideals, I still insist that they mean something, and I'm going to organize by five, by ten, by a hundred, by a thousand uh, people uh, to come together and shift the norms that shift the culture that finally will shift the law, in that case around segregation and civil rights. But I think all of that means what you know the creed is, is an invitation to us uh, to grapple with its meaning and then to ask, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do about it? Um, and that to me, um, again, like, yes, that will eventually get you to politics, elections, running for office like you did, serving in government like I did. Uh, but long before you get to that kind of stuff, um, it's about really spending some time and thinking about what have we inherited here and what do we owe to this system and to each other uh, to kind of gain some, uh, some mastery uh, of what it means to grapple with the American creed. Uh, that's, that's profound. Uh, one of the things you, you write about is that uh, now our arguments seem like they're, let's see if I can get this quote from one of your sermons. The arguments in American politics today are stupid in many ways. Uh, they're stuck in a decaying two-party institutional framework. I'd agree. <laughs> they, they, they fail to challenge foundational assumptions about capitalism or government. They center on symbolic policy skirmishes instead of naming the underlying change. They focus excessively on style and surface. I read that passage. I was like, preach, because <laughs> I, I, I agree with you on, on all those counts. Um, so why does it seem like we're having dumber and dumber, less and less substantive arguments? And what can we do to try and drag them into more productive uh, zones because right now it does seem like it, it's just increasingly just clash clash incoherent it's like and I don't even know what victory looks like anymore because <laughs> because we're not translating it into uh, you know uh, effective policy you know I um, I think about our work at Citizen University um, often by distinguishing between culture and structure um, and, you know, you've already talked about both culture and structure, and, and I want to get back to what you're doing now with Forward Party and, and, and other such endeavors. Um, <clears throat> on the culture side, um, what has made our arguments more stupid, what has made our civic and political discourse so unsatisfying, um, has a lot to do with the incentives of um, the communications mediums of our times, Right. Um, so you don't think media, social media is making us more productive there? Yeah, social <laughs> I'm media, I mean, social, social media is tearing us apart, you know, yeah. inclusively. It, it rewards heat. It rewards the sensational. It rewards kind of, um, you know, Amanda Ripley, uh, the author, has a great term for this. Conflict entrepreneurs. Uh, <laughs> that, who, that is a great term. You know, uh, people who make a living uh, and find their life's purpose in finding wedges where they can stir up fake debates and false choices and false binaries um, that, that then lead people to kind of, you know, are you with us against us and, and kind of amplify their echo chambers, right? Um, that culture, uh, which uh, is, you know, it, it's longstanding. It didn't get invented with social media, but social media has now made it a, a deep, deep pathology. Um, you know, that's one part of it. But the structure piece, and this is where what you're, you know, doing right now is important. Uh, it's also that we have a structure that feeds 
false choices and binaries, right? And that, of course, begins with a, a, a two-party system, um, but it also begins with a system of, you know, elections that are, um, you know, winner take all, first past the post. Um, and all the yeah. work that you're doing now with Fair Vote and others to, you know, advance rank choice voting um, as a way to actually, um, again, complexify the ways in which the republic represents us, right? A republic is just supposed to be a, a, a recreation of our complexity. And right now, our republic, focused as it is in this false binary, um, leaves so much out of the picture. And, you know, the struggles, again, as we're speaking right now, the struggles that are happening on the House floor over trying to, you know, get a House speaker elected are evidence of that, right? I mean, uh, it's, so it's long a as fraction of a fraction. Like, yeah, it's you know, a fraction like, of a fraction, right? <laughs> Who themselves were elected by fractions of fractions, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, so that's a structural matter. And I think, you know, um, if uh, groups like Fair Vote um, and, uh, you know, with your help, uh, can actually make progress as they are in jurisdictions around the United States um, in getting people to get more comfortable with the idea of a different way of approaching voting and a different way of selecting um, uh, those who represent us. Um, that will be a structural uh, reform that can address this, the stupidity of our political culture, right? Um, but I think, um, you know, part of it at the end of the day, too, because, um, you know, to people who are listening to us right now, like, they're like, yeah, I agree, you know, but what do I do? Right. Yeah. And, and I think, question. you know, and I think uh, I think from my vantage point at Citizen University, what we tell folks is the other driver of stupidity in our politics is the way in which all of it is mediated um, such that you have no there, there are no consequences. You can torch and flame somebody on social media. You never see them again. You have no inter you have no relationship or continuing interaction with them. But when you are grounded in a web of relationship and obligation in place, rooted in a community, and you're going to keep on seeing people over and over again. That doesn't mean all of a sudden that consensus arises magically. People will still have sharp, deep uh, divides and disagreements. But you learn to deal with each other in a different way. Um, you learn to actually humanize each other. And I think you, the work... You, you can't flame someone who's on the, the co-op board with you or something. <laughs> yeah, well, you <laughs> can, but you kind of recognize, day. as you spend more time with them, you recognize, oh, that person who I so dislike politically um, on this board with me or who's in my neighborhood... Um, I realize that there's another facet to them, that their family is going, the same, going through the same health challenge that my family is going through, that they had a mentor or a teacher um, who was very much like my mentor or teacher, that they faced a trauma um, in their young life that's similar to one that uh, I know about, right? And when you humanize in that way, um, you get to, again, popping people back up from two dimensions to three dimensions. Uh, right now, our political culture flattens everybody to two dimensions, right? And I think yeah. we individually and then in groups have to recommit to rehumanizing each other it's a political culture of dehumanization uh and and that that's that that leads us in really dark directions yeah and i think that is you know that, that's as much a part of the solution as ranked choice voting um or you know other there are all kinds of you know i, I co-chaired this commission um on the on ways to reform democratic citizenship in the united states and we had a whole bunch of recommendations like ranked choice voting like multi-member districts, uh, you know, there are all kinds of structural reforms that you can get to. Campaign finance reform, obviously, would, you know, diversify by far the number of people who feel like they have a shot um, at getting heard in political life. Um, but, I, you know, when I said earlier, I think about culture and structure, in my view, and in the work of Citizen University, we think that culture is upstream of structure, that culture precedes structure, 
that culture defines the parameters and the room of possibility for your fights around policy in the structural realm. And so if you have a culture that is dehumanizing, binary, polarized, nihilistic, no memory, no commitments, then, then your room for structural change is very limited, right? Your ability to actually advance policy um, is about as wide as what you see it happening on, on the House of Representatives right now, right? Um, but if you have a culture in which people see themselves mutualistically interdependent with one another, think about themselves as stewards, part of a chain of obligation that preceded us and will extend beyond us, um, and recognizes in a grown-up way that, yeah, we're going to have arguments, and the point of American life is to argue our worldviews, but then to continue to play the game. That this is not a, if I lose one round, I'm quitting or I'm burning the game down. It is a game of infinite repeat play, right? And that difference between a we, finite we, we and certainly, We game, certainly hope it's infinite. <laughs> well, you, again, you got to act as if it's infinite. And that is the well, leap well, of faith yeah, yeah. that you've got to take. Because if you, once you start, once a critical mass of us start acting as if it's finite, as if it, you could actually wipe the other party or the other team or the other side off the face of the earth and just gain total power, then you get into a death spiral. So how many Civic Saturdays have you personally led at this point? Oh, I mean, personally, um, dozens. I mean, just, uh, uh, you know, and st they started here in Seattle, but for many years I was traveling around the country and, and, and doing these in different places. And that book that you uh, showed earlier, Become America, collects <clears throat> civic sermons that I gave at the first 19 or 20 of those around the country. But like I said earlier, um, the point, you know, that was fun, but it is super not scalable for me to run around the country and, and do that. And so that's why we created this civic seminary program um, where we are training people, catalytic people who are not, you know, capital L leaders and, you know, big names in their towns or whatever. They're just folks who decide, like many people who have kind of gravitated to your political endeavors, decide that they want a new way of being. They want a new way of being invited into uh, the public square. I mean, they raise their hand and we've been training. Uh, we just trained our 18th cohort uh, of these folks. They come from tiny, small towns of 500. They come from big cities and they are leading Civic Saturdays everywhere. There are people watching this right now that are, are like, ooh, how do I sign up for this? Like, what is there a selection process? What did they do? Yeah, well, you just go to our website, citizenuniversity.us. And, um, you know, we are, it's a rolling set of applications. We have cohorts uh, every couple of months and uh, um, and it's a great, you know, it's a, we call it a Civic Saturday Fellowship because it really is a fellowship. You, you get trained over a course of a week. We bring folks out to Seattle and train them in both the, the nuts and bolts of holding a gathering like this, but also the deeper kind of ideas and ethical frameworks that you and I have been talking about here. Um, but then after that week, we send people back and we support them over the next bunch of months as they try to get this going in their communities. And, you know, during COVID, this all happened on Zoom and people were doing you know, virtual Civic Saturdays, but now people are getting back in person. And, and, and that's just a thrilling thing to kind of, you know, again, the double appetite that people have, not only to be part of something meaningful and civic and, and, and get out of their isolation and loneliness, uh, but just the slingshot effect of having been in COVID isolation for so, for so long uh, and to remember what it's like to make meaning and make joy and to make sense of stuff with other people in a room together where you can see each other and feel each other and read body language together, like that is a gift. You know, it's it's a it's a gift and it's a little bit of a miracle when it happens, and that's uh, uh, that's what we're trying to foster. 
holy cow, you must be a proud papa every Saturday, like looking around <laughs> being like, and, and now in hundreds of communities around the country, there's someone who's standing in front of a group, a group of people and they're singing together and they're reading from, uh, you know, it, it could, I mean, it, it could be a poem, a uh, work of literature, uh, the U.S. Constitution, a presidential speech, like, uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, do you feel that every Saturday now? You know, I feel a great sense of gratitude. It's not so much proud papa and more like, I'm so grateful that people have responded to this, right? And that people have decided to do something with this. And, you know, and by the way, we, we often say like our, our mode in spreading Civic Saturdays is we're not Starbucks, we're TEDx. Like we're not trying to create a uniform experience everywhere on every corner in every town. Um, we're actually, we've got a frame like TEDx does where, you know, you got a wireframe of what a TEDx event is and how it relates to a Mothership TED event. But then if you do a TEDx, you know, in, in Garrison, New York, or if you do a TEDx in Palo Alto, or if you do a TEDx in Brownsville, Minnesota, or a TEDx in Tampa, Florida, you're going to do it your way. You're going to do it in ways that respond to the culture, the norms, the music, the sounds, the vibe, the, 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 the tone uh, of your place and your people, right? And, um, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I was struck by how personal your sermons were in Become America. Like I imagined that, that, that there might be more of like, a, hey, someone else could deliver uh, this this sermon, but no one else could because it's literally, it's like, <laughs> you know, like you unpack, you know, like your family's history or like, you know, uh, like a personal experience. And so I, I found myself thinking, it's like, wow, this would be tough for someone else uh, to to duplicate unless they were very, very talented. They don't have to duplicate it. They don't have to do, the, the, the beautiful thing is, and the point is that if you, Andrew, were to do a Civic Saturday, you know, you would do it the way you do it. You would not be doing it to sound like Eric Lou. Dude, I, I, I would be tremendous at it. <laughs> you, you'd kill it. Yeah. I would kill that Civic Saturday. C come join one of our come join one of our cohorts. But but you know, but the, the idea at at the end of our civic seminary week, one of the things we do is we have everybody in the cohort actually craft and deliver a miniature, just a five minute. Oh um, yeah, yeah. They should totally do that. Sermon. Totally. And and, yeah. and they do that. And I'll tell you what. Like every time it doesn't, it never fails. These short five minute sermons given by people who are not as practiced as you or I might be in public speaking, are not as steeped in American history or literature as I might be, whatever. They give, they, they craft and they deliver some of the most moving, powerful, resonant, timely, necessary um, little civic sermons wow. that you could imagine. Why? Because they're being authentic and they're trying to yeah. tune into the community that they're trying to serve, right? And if you've got that, then, then the rest is gravy. And, um, and, and so I think, you know, one of the things I imagine you've learned over the course of, you know, going around the country, and I know your, you know, your campaign in many ways was powered by the thing that I criticized earlier, social media, but the, but the stickiness of it was that you were connecting with people, right? And when you went to places and people could feel the actual, they, they could feel the enthusiasm and energy of you, a bodily kind of you know, vibe, right? Um, and and they could kind of connect that way and they can now, you know, now with Forward Party, like, look, I'm still a Democrat. I I, I want the Democratic Party to figure stuff out um, and, and ultimately uh, be able to kind of sustain a, you know, a durable working majority for positive, inclusive governance, you know, for a good long time, right? But I welcome the emergence of a Forward Party because, you know, things like the Forward Party, 
you know, you're gathering together a pretty interesting mix of folks, right? Some who were your early Yang gang, younger people who were just disillusioned with all of politics, others who are homeless former Republicans um, who are completely disenchanted with the ways in which that party has gone off the rails, um, who, uh, but who want a place where they can kind of espouse basic, you know, core values of decency, but, uh, uh, you know, not get bound up with, with some of the crazy. Um, and you've got other folks who are just, you know, uh, Asian Americans who are inspired that they, you know, that, that a person like you is leading. And the more that we can create spaces for people to express their authentic sense of political voice. And I think more importantly, and this is the thing that you, you, you really, I think, demonstrated for a lot of people, to know your own mind. You know, so much of our political culture is about repeating talking points that you're hearing from your team, uh, from Fox News or MSNBC, you know, from one party uh, or another. Um, and to actually know your own mind and ask questions and to kind of be able to challenge orthodoxies on your own side, um, uh, you know, that's a habit and a norm that every one of us has to recommit to if we're ever going to get out of this situation that we're in right now. Um, and so endeavors like Forward Party, you know, I hope will actually, uh, you know, uh, encourage people to do that. Thank you for, for seeing exactly what we're going for uh, here, Eric. I mean, uh, if we can help modernize the structures and, and give people um, more choices through things like ranked choice voting, uh, then uh, I think that you'd see massive changes. Uh, and hopefully everyone who's part of the forward party wants those things, just wants uh, more voices to emerge in a less polarized uh, system. Um, and, and, you know, like I, I, I was obviously a Democrat for a long time and I want the same things for people and families and communities as I ever have. Uh, and, you know, like at, at this point, I, I just wish that more people had the same spirit you do, which is like to, to have the confidence to say, Hey, I like this, uh, but something that's going to be good for the system. Like I could be for too. Yeah. Look, I, again, as a Democrat, uh, and also as an American, one of the things I wish fondly for is a functional Republican Party. Uh, uh, you know, I, it's not good for a society to, to be a mono-party society. Um, it's, not, it's not good for a society to have one party claim, you know, all the symbols of, you know, patriotism or, or uh, American identity. Um, and even if, and that's certainly true when Republicans are the ones who've tried to grab patriotism in the flag, um, that's dangerous. But it would be equally true if, you know, Republicans gave up that and it was only Democrats who could actually speak about fidelity to the Constitution and commitment to an inclusive idea of American uh, uh, promise. And, and, you know, the thing that I find intriguing about the forward party, and it'll be interesting to see how you all evolve uh, over time, is it's, you know, to, to not want polarization is not the same thing as to not want argument. Um, you know, I, I think argument is good. Um, we have a little project that we're running with the Aspen Institute and um, Facing History and Ourselves, which is a great uh, nonprofit, and, and the Allstate Corporation. We've all combined to create something called the Better Arguments Project on the idea that, you know, we don't need, we don't need fewer arguments right now. We just need less stupid ones, right? <laughs> well, look at this. I hit on this theme of, like, having stupid arguments. Not stupid arguments, right? And I think, you know, uh, when you have something like the Forward Party, which is trying to be a third thing, 
you you are initially a magnet for a lot of people who are disenchanted with the other two things. Um, but that itself, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that there's a co coherent affirmative thing uh, at the heart of the Ford Party. And I think, you know, as you guys are now committing to things like ranked choice voting and these kinds of democracy reforms, that to me feels like a big part of the answer for how you can actually not just be the land of misfit toys, but actually be the place where there's an affirmative goal here. And your goal as the forward party is let's change the way that rules are rigged here so that we get out of false binaries and out of stupid arguments. And if all you did was that, you know, Richard Hofstadter, the historian, said of third parties in American history that, you know, for the most part, they are like bees that sting the beast of one of the two major parties um, and force the beast to move and change and then die, right? And that may be the fate of the forward party. Uh, but if you sting both beasts right now, the Republican and the Democratic beasts, um, and get them to embrace a different way of thinking about rules and about the ways in which we include uh, you know, people in the way we think about primaries and, and so on and so forth, um, that actually make democracy more democratic, more small d democratic. Democratic, yeah. Then, then you yeah, are yeah. doing a great service. Yeah, you understand it acutely. Uh, what, what's interesting, Eric, though, is that if we succeed in uh, implementing ranked choice voting in nonpartisan primaries, like uh, it would functionally decrease the dominance uh, of the two parties, which is one reason why. Uh, I knew that you had to go outside the two-party system because, like, no organization is going to say, "Hey, I want to, you know, like have less clout, <laughs> have less power." Um, knowing also full well that uh, even in a nonpartisan uh, ranked choice voting environment, someone with an R or a D next to their name still would have a massive advantage uh, in in just about every um, district. This has been a real pleasure talking to someone who understands these issues as deeply as, as you do. I've been working on them for, um, for I, I, not to date you, but at this point, I, I can safely say decades. <laughs> it's, a, it's a blessing to keep getting to do this stuff. So uh, citizenuniversity.us, I know a lot of people watching this right now or listening to it are, are thinking like, ooh, I'd love to sign up for Civic Saturdays. Um, what, how else can people keep up with you, uh, benefit from your work, support you and your organization? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for that, Andrew. I think, you know, I, I want to tell you about a couple other projects that we have going at Citizen University that are ways that people might also be able to, to connect. Uh, um, for years, we've been running this uh, program called the Civic Collaboratory, which is a, essentially a mutual aid um, network of civic innovators drawn from across the political spectrum, across all sectors of civic work, silos of civic work, whether it's immigrant rights, veterans, civic education, civic tech, you name it. Um, and it has included people that run the gamut from Tea Party co-founders to Black Lives Matter uh, advocates and activists. Um, and the through line is, are people innovating in civic life to try to make civic life more inclusive uh, and, and, and more kind of to foster bottom-up power, right? And um, for years, we did this as a national thing. And we call it a mutual aid society because we had this format at the heart of it called the Rotating Credit Club, which is kind of like a, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like a lending circle where every time we meet, four or five members of the group will present to the full group, here's a project I'm working on, here's an endeavor, here's an initiative or a new party I'm launching or whatever it might be. And the rest of the group has to offer not critique or commentary, but actually hard commitments of help and just kind of put into the pot. Like, I commit 
to help you with this. I commit to introducing you to this funder. I commit um, to, you know, strategizing with you, with you. I commit to doing, you know, an alliance with you, you know, on this project, whatever it might be. And you might make commitments to somebody you just met at that meeting uh, because the vibe and the norm is what goes around comes around. It'll be your turn to be in rotation a few meetings down the road. And you want that same kind of leaning in to happen for you. Well, we've been doing this nationally for, you know, t 10, 12 years. And in the last couple of years, we realized, actually, this format probably could work even better if it was rooted in place, if it was, yeah. you know, in a local way. And so we piloted that in Chicago. We've now got it going in Atlanta. Um, and um, one message I would have for anybody who's watching is we are looking for places all around the United States right now um, that could seed a local place-based collaboratory. And we will train Love folks. It. You're going to get some requests out of this for sure. We will train folks on how to, how to run these and how to, how to organize them and then send you back out um, to hold this kind of space, right? And I think this is, the again, the bottom-up spirit of this. When, when you talked about how, you know, in the work of the Forward Party, the, the two major parties are not necessarily going to, you know, be excited about things that might diminish uh, the power that they have, you know, in a duopoly. This is where you can actually make a virtue of the of the unfortunate fact that we have all been geographically sorting so that many communities are politically monolithic. And which is to say all ref all politics is local, but all reform of politics should be local, too. Right. And so if you're in a place like Seattle, which is a deep blue place, you know, where the only difference here is, are you a Democrat or are you a socialist, right? Then to propose things like ranked choice voting is not about kind of helping Republicans. There are no uh, Republicans uh, uh, who, who, are, who have the ability to get elected uh, in a community like Seattle. So now you're just among a circle uh, of progressive people. How are you trying to make the process um, of policymaking and elections more inclusive um, and more representative uh, of different people's issues, right? Um, and that, and the same would be true, you know, um, you know, in in a red city, in a red or community, Missouri or wherever. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. You know, and I, I think that that kind of, uh, but but the local civic collaboratory um, is another invitation that I want to put to people. You know, um, and we've created a youth collaboratory as well, where high school students around the country join the national civic collaboratory every year. Um, you know, both to get their own mentorship and exposure to these, you know, incredible people, but also to practice, to do their own civic power projects, to start figuring out how am I going to make change in my community? And so if you're a high school student somewhere in the country, sign up for that and join us for that. Well, thank you for the gifts, Eric. Thank you for your incredible work on behalf of really all Americans. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's a joy to talk to someone who's literally just trying to supercharge citizenship in the way that you have. I enjoyed your latest book, Become America, Civ Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy, a great deal. And I hope we can find ways to work together. Andrew, I, I really appreciate this conversation. And, uh, you know, right back at you. I think you've, uh, uh, you've awakened and inspired a lot of people to show up in new ways. And I hope you'll keep at that. And, uh, uh, and I look forward to, to more conversation. Yes. Amen, brother. Uh, you can follow Eric on Twitter, too, at Eric P. Liu, that's L-I-U, and uh, check out citizenuniversity.us. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom and power there. Thanks, Andrew.